0: Coming back to those three stories and where we are in the world and how to approach the great turning, I really fully believe in the need of a diverse portfolio of strategies. And so I find myself personally committed and optimistic, you know, pretty obsessed with the one we're approaching, but I would be disappointed if everybody uh, was doing this just as if everybody was thinking about, um, you know, the space race. So I think that all the different sizes of projects, the different, you know, interventions that help move us in this direction are super important. And when we zoom out, I think that's what we want to be looking at is how is our portfolio strategies looking as it's kind of, you know, like waves crashing into this, these, these degrading norms and, and starting to, you know, pave the way for the, this, this transformation.
1: That's Jay Wong talking about how much it means to him to be working on building regenerative smart villages and how much it means to him that there are people out there devoting themselves to other pieces of this puzzle as we co-create these sustainable ways of doing things. Jay Wong is a co-founder of Inspira Villages, a real estate development and design firm based in Portugal dedicated to building regenerative smart villages designed around healthy living, holistic sustainability, and local resilience. He grew up in Southern California and has lived and worked in the US, India, and Portugal in technology, health, nutrition, wellness, finance, and media with a focus on innovation in product and service design, sustainability, and systemic transformation. Jay is also a meditation teacher, offering workshops and retreats on stress management and personal development. He helps run a yoga school with his wife and is a proud father of three. He's also my little brother, and I'm so excited to be having these kinds of conversations with him and to get to share this one with you. You're listening to Turning Season podcast. I'm your host, Leilani Navar, here with your dedicated dose of active hope. I'm delighted to bring you these conversations with the inspired individuals who are collectively shifting us to a life-sustaining society. You'll hear from all kinds of healers and changemakers playing their unique part in the great turning. From healing personal trauma to visionary thinking, decolonization to building composting toilets, new innovations to bridging social divides, there are thousands of reasons and ways to participate. Keep listening to find out more of what's being done already and what's possible. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and come to turningseason.com to connect. We touch on so many topics in this conversation, it's amazing how much is involved when you're thinking about creating a fully functional small town. So I won't aim to list those topics out for you here, but I do want to mention a couple of things before you listen to the whole conversation. You'll hear the terms bioregional circular economy and cradle to cradle. Jay explains a bit about what bioregional means, But for those who are new to the idea of circular economy, it's a vision for an economic system that keeps all materials in a cycle, as you would see in a forest, for example. There's no landfill in a forest. Nothing gets used up and then thrown away. Animal waste, dead plants and dead animals, these generate new soil, which feeds new plants, which feed animals, and so on. Right now we have a linear system where we extract resources, make the products, and then we throw them away. Even though there is no real away, we throw them in our landfills and our oceans, and then we continually extract more resources to make more stuff. So a circular economy aims to use things like compostable packaging, so the packaging goes back into the cycle, and processes like reclaiming materials from electronics, for example, that are no longer working, and using those reclaimed materials to build the next product. Cradle to cradle expresses that idea, where a product doesn't go to its grave, it goes back to its next cradle, whatever it's going to become next. And there's a cradle to cradle institute supporting this type of development and Giving products certification as cradle to cradle certified. So I'll link in the show notes to some places you can learn more about that and about circular economy in general. Another resource Jay mentions is Michael Dowd's Post Doom series, which is a fantastic series of conversations with 75 guests, including Joanna Macy the root teacher of the work that reconnects and the woman with the extraordinary mind and heart who coined the term the great turning and described the three stories of our time, which you will hear about, and also described the three dimensions of the great turning. So the three aspects of what we need to do here to turn humanity toward a life-sustaining society. And those dimensions are one, actions to slow the damage to earth and its beings. So here is everything we do to restrain pollution, to protect waterways, to protect forests, and of course, to protect people who are being the most harmed by the crises we're in right now. The second dimension is looking at the structural causes of the mess that we're in and the creation of structural alternatives. And the third is a shift in consciousness. The way we do things right now is kept in motion through some pretty deeply ingrained values. And if we have new structural alternatives, then to be able to sustain those, we're going to need deeply ingrained values that are in alignment with that kind of sustainability. What's so exciting to me about Jay's project is that it is such a thorough effort at Tackling a big issue in the second dimension, there, looking at structural causes and structural alternatives. I had lots of questions re-listening to this, and I imagine you might too. And maybe you have ideas as well or expertise in one of these areas. So come leave a comment at turningseason.com/episode two, and again you can find links there to Inspira villages and all the resources that we mention all right here's our conversation welcome jay thank you so much for coming to talk with me on turning season podcast
0: thank you for having me
1: so to start let's talk about the three stories of our time and i'd love to hear how you're relating to these three stories i know it changes for many of us from day to day or even hour to hour but however you want to uh, answer that So, the three stories are business as usual. Some of us are living in the story that that humanity's been in for some centuries now of basically headed for growth, making more, earning more. Human ingenuity and new technology will take care of everything. And we should basically carry on with business as usual. And a lot of us are living in. A second story, which we can call the great unraveling, looking at imminent climate disaster, mass extinction, crises of war and refugees, and the sense that everything is falling apart. And a third story, the great turning is an adventure story. It's the adventure story that humanity is in right now where we are turning we're finding out how and we're taking the steps to turn toward a life sustaining way of having human society on this planet so how do you personally relate to those three stories
0: well i can say that it changes over time and i guess to respond to the three three different stories i'll I'll, I'll back up to, to maybe two or three years ago where I found myself coming back to look deeper into the, the changes in climate and ecology. And you know, topics that I'd been following for a long time, but had sort of gotten caught up in the day-to-day as the business of usual of starting a family, having a job, um, you know, doing work that felt meaningful and and impactful for me but also with this sense of um growing insecurity of the systemic changes and whether i was understanding them and how things were moving um behind the scenes that i i just hadn't connected to so much and so that really led to this like sort of crippling um period of just um Deep, deep sadness, um, and and you know, literally um, finding myself uh, in tears, thinking about the trajectory that we're on and the the life that my children are are growing into, and this the layers of social, cultural, economic uh, challenges that stand in the way of of addressing in a meaningful way um, some of these great great problems and you know so I sort of stayed there for a while and um and found myself coming out and I, I really loved I don't know if you know Michael Dowd his post doom series is just a wonderful series of interviews that has some similar um, similarities I would say to this to these three stories and um and what what I saw there and what I felt as I was going through this is that it was really important for me to go through that. and and it's, you know it was it was traumatic. It is still traumatic, but that it there's another level of appreciation and and humility that I feel now. And so i I aspire to live. Um, I think I often live within this sense of adventure of the turning and acceptance for the madness and complexity that that we're in. But also because of what I'm working on, I find myself wanting to be a bridge, wanting to, to hold conversation and space, uh, to invite more people into engaging with these topics in a way that is not debilitating, but that leads towards shared collective action. And that involves, um, in, in my approach at least, meeting them where they are, to acknowledge day-to-day of business as usual and the the temptations of of the promises and also the the um addiction is probably not the right word but the but the the stickiness of you know staying in that story um and and as well as i'd say equally as important the necessity of this more pessimistic unraveling um story that i don't know I don't know if it is appropriate for one to jump too soon into the turning without sort of coming to grips with the gravity of, of the situation. Um, and so I, you know, if there's one thing that I've, I've learned is, you know, my relationship with serious topics uh, continues to unfold. So I, I'm sure I'll continue to sense and feel each of these stories uh, more as, as my journey goes on, but I, I certainly aspire to live in this, in this turning and adventure. And, um, and that's where I put my energy.
1: Yeah. It sounds like you've had a personal arc that goes right through the three stories. And I think what you're saying about needing to see the great unraveling or however we want to name these crises is so important because why would we see the necessity for the great turning if we aren't aware of the seriousness of the situation and that's been on my mind recently as things intensify around climate especially that more and more people are becoming aware that we are in this sort of unraveling and I wonder if in five years, we'll even be talking about it in this way, because for so long, since you and I were kids, even before there were a lot of people trying to sound the alarm and say, this is dangerous. This is going to harm not only other species, but ourselves. And there's been a lot of pushback from business as usual or denial or disagreement about that. And it's getting less and less deniable. So on one hand, I see that and feel daunted, afraid, or sad, or some blend of all of that angry sometimes. And on the other hand, I think, okay, this is what we were waiting for. It needed to get this bad for enough people to recognize what's going on so that we could make a larger scale transition. And I'd love to hear more about it. If there's more, you could share about this bridge building and having conversations Like, what does that look like for you when you're talking to someone and trying to meet them where they're at, if it's more in business as usual and yeah, I just, maybe some art of conversation things or whatever has been helpful to you that might be helpful to listeners if they're having these conversations too.
0: Sure. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a constant work in progress. I wouldn't claim that this is some, you know, secret code by any means, but my approach has been to try to meet people where they are and try to get a felt sense for the potential of the conversation and what has been difficult for me in the past and i am doing better at it still got some growth to have is to not push these topics into conversations where there's just not the space to have them and recognizing that life is full and hard and just you know whether you're you know uh, a teenager um you know a young adult a, a married with a family or without you know your your relationship with life and and i'm you know this comes from a pretty privileged western world um set of experiences but most people have a sense of overwhelm in general And being able to make space in their minds for these bigger topics is not an obvious thing. Uh, it's not something that everybody thinks about. And I, I think most people are familiar with these topics because of headlines, but maybe it only makes up, you know, two to 5% of their mental, uh, you know, space and energy. And so, and, and that there's actually a, a wall because they don't you know work family cooking cleaning you know making plans you know these things fill up a life and um and so sensing if somebody wants to go deeper if they're curious to go deeper doing that with questions or uh, or sharing you know more of a personal experience of you know how i felt from learning about something uh, as a way of invitation is is kind of how i've been approaching it And trying to do better at uh, not assuming, you know, as important as I think all of these topics are um, not assuming that everyone wants to have those topics, because I think there's um, there's even there's even a disservice to the journey of somebody onboarding into these topics, if they're not ready um, to enter that space, if they're kind of pushed into it, um, you know, there can be even more of a reactivity and uh, defensiveness and and especially with things like climate change and um you know ecological collapse and these sorts of topics is it's hard for somebody to feel like they have the agency to make a difference and the way you know and so it you're you're very quickly forced to think about multivariate complex system problems um none of which one feels they are particularly influential and changing. Um, and and that's, that can be frustrating and depressing. So being, being very sensitive to that and also to the fact that it's just really sad, you know, and that there's a complement to that that is a deeper and more constant appreciation for the beauty of life. But, you know, that doesn't happen in five minutes in, in, the, yeah. in, the, in the chat. So so being sensitive to that, uh, you know, being open to hold that space and want, you know, seeking those conversations, but not trying not to push them onto people.
1: Yeah, that's great. I can remember feeling like I wanted to push these topics, especially like in my early 20s and going to Evergreen. And like this is all we need to talk about this all the time. <laughs> Um, but I love how you are aware of the fact that actually pushing it might be really counterproductive to the goal of connecting with somebody and, you know, inviting them in to thinking about this, caring about this, seeing their own role in this. And, uh, it reminds me even of, of healing the body. If you push something too fast, too hard, it, it, it isn't helpful. You can't go. You can't go where you want to go by making it overly stressful. So um,
0: that's a great analogy.
1: I want to hear lots and lots about your project. And I know you've you've networked with all kinds of people and been learning lots of things. If we could just touch in before we get there to a little bit more about what moves you. I know you mentioned thinking about the future and your kids, my beloved niece and nephews. And yeah, I, I want to ask, what do you love about being alive on earth? What What's beautiful to you about life?
0: Oh, that's a fun question. So I, I am just falling more and more in love with this spectacular mystery that we find ourselves in. And it's, I think, um, everything from learning and just observing and being being immersed in in nature when we when we have the the opportunities to be and and just reflecting on consciousness and 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 life and all the different species and and this chaotic but at the same time incredibly elegant flow of of uh of of life is um it's just endlessly beautiful and endlessly um humbling and impressive and i think that's uh that's quite uh inspiring and as you know uh yoga and and meditation have been a big part of my life for for many years and that sort of inner complement of exploration to this outer observation is just this like endless frontier of discovery it feels Mm -hmm. like and um you know i still um, I still feel like uh, like an explorer when I go into meditation, and, and that you know we're somehow riding this phenomenal wave that has uh, many surprises along the way, and uh, and I I think it's something something to treasure, something to appreciate. <laughs> I
1: love that. Yeah, exploring, and it is so mysterious and a wave. Yeah. That's beautiful. And then I'll ask you kind of the, the other side of the, of the outstretched arms. Um, (laughs) When you look around at what's happening in the natural world, what breaks your heart?
0: Uh, So many things. Um, Yeah. Just the, I'd say the the short-sighted nature of, of our relations, our collective relationship to the problem and the how easily uh, distracted or captured we seem to be from looking away from what should be um in, in my understanding painfully obvious that we need to be stewards living in a completely different relationship with all of the natural world. I had a, had a wonderful conversation recently when uh, this, this gentleman he was telling me of a hike he was on and that as they were passing um, another couple that the woman said, oh, it's such a nice scenery, this uh, here in, in nature. And someone he was with made this comment, ah, one day that's gonna be like a racist thing to say kind of like mm. shook, shook him and shook me and it was, but the how how clear the assumption is for for much of our culture that we are separate from nature
1: mm-hmm.
0: and just just how deep that separation is yet how fundamentally tied we are to the water cycle and to the biodiversity and all of the natural rhythms and we are you know We are a clever species with some fancy thumbs and, and a decent brain, but we are, we are intertwined and dependent and we are, uh, we are just deeply disrespecting, uh, ourselves and, and our broader family of life. And that, um, so it is, it is, it is sad to see, um, that, and I, I'll add just another bit, which is kind of like more on the um, the narrative side or the conversational side It's like, I get very frustrated with the oversimplification of the problems, particularly this obsession with CO2 and this, you know, ticking clock calculation, which is important sure, but it is misguiding. And we've been on that track for decades, and it is not working to move people. And I think that what is missing there, and what would be getting more to the heart of the opportunity is for people to reimagine and, you know, fall back in love with with our world and with life. And that means focusing on whole system health and ecology. And, you know, if we can somehow come up with some crazy technologies that capture CO2 at a rate that our other technologies monitor and give us some confidence that that's a good rate, while at the same time exacerbating desertification and completely disrupting the jet stream and watching the oceans acidify, we're we're killing ecosystems and species are going extinct that are they're not coming back you know without another you know long long uh chapter you know millennia uh of of new new life to, to stabilize and and come about and and so the the speed of destruction while while being distracted by and and pushed to think about these these abstractions of 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 co2 and, and simplified metrics that take you away from a whole system's understanding and, and focus, I think, is a is is a big disservice. Is proven by now to not be working, and that we need to be focusing on whole ecological health, and that that is a that's a really important um, piece that I often find uh, hard not to push into conversations as we were <laughs> talking about before.
1: Yeah, yeah, so true. And I mean, we could conceivably get a lot more hands on deck to restrict carbon emissions and to transform that piece of what we're doing while simultaneously continuing business as usual in every other way and being ultimately just as destructive and I mean, I think it ties back to what we were saying before, you know, when it, when it gets too complicated, it becomes overwhelming and that's not anybody's fault. That's, I mean, it truly is complex and we are not only interwoven into nature and a part of it, we're also so, our systems are so interwoven. And so it's a challenge and it's, it's no small task to keep it all in mind and then think about how to communicate that (laughs) and, encourage shifts that are more holistic in their thinking. But yeah, with that, with that all in mind, let's hear about what you're working on, which is a whole system and within the system. Tell us about your project.
0: Sure. Yeah. So kind of picking up where, where I started telling you about the, that sort of uh low point point a couple of years back that led me to go through a few different stages, thinking about where do I want to live, how can I, you know, protect and and provide for my family and, um, you know, where is going to be safer in terms of climate and ecological trajectory, but also, you know, cultural and economic factors, considering the fragilities of our, our globalized system and, um, you know, the different existential risks that we have in play, you know, and so looking at uh the collapse literature about you know rise and fall of civilizations uh compounded with exponential technologies that we're having now you know all these different factors and I was leaning towards um my wife and I thinking of a place that would be a bit a bit more water resilient smaller town uh not not necessarily like a a solo homestead but probably like um maybe finding two or three other families that want to have a shared garden, you know, kind of this sort of model. And part of me still loves the idea of having that experience, but I realized that for myself, I feel I felt this, this clarity inside of what is my role? What are my gifts to give? What contribution do I want to make? And I realized I'm, I want to be present at the perimeter of the mainstream and i'm concerned with this increasing trend of separation in in so many ways and that this this assumption that 75 percent of us are going to live in in cities uh i think is a deeply flawed and dangerous assumption that we need to oppose and this is kind of the the default trajectory of urbanization, and it's leading to less people in rural areas, so less capacity to take care of the land and, and rehabilitate it. It's leading to inequality in the cities. It's you know, cities are built on these old infrastructure. It's very difficult to redesign um, a truly sustainable uh, city um, based on those that legacy infrastructure and. And I, when I look at the, the smaller eco village or the smaller community models, I think that they're beautiful, they're learning a lot. And I also feel like they're not really influencing the conversation at this mainstream level, where, where the difference or where at least a big piece of the difference is going to be made in the coming decades. And so this led to the concept of a regenerative smart village. Uh, it's called in villages, we're building developing our first one here in Portugal and we're in the pre-development stage now and essentially what we're doing is we're building a small town so it'll be nearly car free and it's designed for multi-generational living picture senior center and open parks and pathways next to parks for kids uh, cafes and some some retail some office space all with ecological design for the homes our uh, our model right now is to build 400 homes uh, at the end of stage three and to also have regenerative agriculture be a big component so it's got four main components the regenerative agriculture a small amount of tourism residential space and commercial space and the commercial is where i think we're going to be able to make the biggest difference is to build an innovative business park dedicated to a bioregional circular economy and this is where many people in this community believe we want to go but we're very far from from getting there and so we want this to be a hub that attracts companies committed to that transformation and to help build in shared services and uh, help promote uh, and help attract new customers for the companies that are committed to that change and doing that in a way that can Rehabilitate, rehabilitate the soil steward the micro diver, biodiversity and the microclimates that are on the land and all be based on decentralized waste energy food and water and so we're talking to different experts uh, on the right size and scale for clustered technology we've got a new regulatory framework in europe uh, for energy communities, so we're planning to be our own energy utility while also hooking up to the mains, so we can sell back our excess and also uh, buy if we if we have a shortage. And the hope is that we just create an environment that is more attractive and more resonant with the values that many more people are having now, with a concern for climate, for ecology. These are people like myself, like. My family and friends that are, you know, maybe looking at ecotourism. they, you know, we, we want to do what we can do, but there's just not much, um, you know, maybe we, you know, you know, we, we, we choose which products and services we buy. We try to look into the, you know, the, the, the mission and the impact, uh, and the standards of the companies, but when it comes to choosing where we live in the built environment, there's no real place that embodies these values and so we see that as a, a real opportunity and a real need that we can create we call nested urbanism so we want we want to create this new sense where there's a bit of street life a little vitality and you know dynamism you know can be fun to to raise a family there and um, and, and and retire there while also living in right relationship with the the natural environment around us So there's a bunch of directions we can go into. Yeah. Close it off there.
1: (laughs) That's so, so exciting. Um, It's just, yeah, there are a bunch of directions we could go. That's really exciting overall. I just want to highlight what you said about recognizing that you wanted to be at the perimeter of mainstream society. And this feels like such a beautiful way for you to be there. And you also earlier used the words building bridges and conversations. And I think about how, correct me if I'm wrong or rephrase this, but a lot of your life was more in a business as usual state of mind until that deep dive into the great unraveling. And now as you emerge into this really purposeful, incredible, challenging, exciting project of the Inspira Villages, that there's that you know, that, that your role in the great turning is right there kind of at that perimeter. So you have people who, who still want what they're used to the idea of a vibrant, you know, town or city life, but in this model that's regenerative and respectful and in a reciprocal relationship with the, the living systems that we're in. So, yeah, I feel like you finding that spot makes so much sense
0: yeah thank you it's i it's been the funnest thing i've ever done so far yeah it's you know uh just so um deliciously complex and rewarding to to think about these problems and and feel like our project is at a scale that is big enough to to influence the way municipalities cities think about the next uh projects for renovation and development and that's really the big goal it's not to you know we're designing it as an impact investment we're gonna you know we we need private investment to to make this infrastructure lift and get it off the ground uh, and we'll provide impact and catalytic investment standard returns but the hope here is really that we inspire this race to the top and that other people uh, other developers other other cities other municipalities look at it and say oh i can do that and i'm going to do it this way mm-hmm. but if we can stabilize decentralized wastewater energy and food as like this sort of new foundation to maslow's pyramid as like this is obvious we should all integrate this i think we're in a much better uh, position to take on some of the, the next challenges um, absolutely that, that come yeah yeah
1: so what is a bioregional circular economy?
0: Yeah, so there's a lot of different, um, there's a few different definitions. The one I like best for bioregion is just look at your watersheds, but you can, like uh, like in Hawaii, if, if you remember, I, I spent some time there after college and they have this system called the Ahapua, this was the ancient system for the uh, Native Hawaiians that went from the peak of the mountain down to the coast, and so it was that there was a bit of each um, uh, altitude in the in each tribe, and that was kind of like a, a way of sharing the resources. And it's it's basically taking the lens and saying, let's be less preoccupied with the uh, borders that are are manmade and, and it's kind, of, kind of the jurisdiction limits but look at the what the ecosystem is is asking for and you know it mainly revolves around bringing the water cycle back to as healthy a state as possible but then removal of invasive species and recreation of uh, of you know stewarding the biodiversity and then there's a lot you know in the the sort of material use that um, will be easier um, you know we're we're kind of we're at a place that is quite daunting to think how are we going to get to a genuinely bioregional circular economy because material use is so uh, spread out and there's a concept that is kind of like a, a a north star although I think I don't think it's been articulated or you know realized or envisioned in a way that it's likely yet, but it's this notion of cosmolocalism. So it's this like resource based economy based on a region a bioregion. So you produce and you use what you have and you have as many closed loops as possible in that region. But then on a globalized scale, you share models and designs and you have this kind of like cultural commons where you can still have the synergy and interaction and excitement of, of, you know, globalism, but detaching that from an extractive um, you know resource side so how does that look in a practical sense companies investing in reverse logistics and localized recycling and upcycling innovations in 3d printing where filaments can be reused at greater efficiencies uh, innovations in packaging looking at cellulose looking at reusable packaging um, and in parallel to all that there's you know a bit more delicate or you know say controversial um critique of the, the the current state of the markets which is um but is also quite relevant is which which products and services do we really care most about mm-hmm. and i think when um you know and and um thinking about the consumer culture and disposable um standards that we have and trying to you know not you know at least our hope is we we don't want to lead with this, you know, um, you know, chastising your consumption, consumption decisions, but inspiring alternatives. Mm -hmm. And, and so if, if we can have the sort of, you know, if you think of your, your household share of wallet, and the things that you really do need something that came very present to much of us during, uh, during lockdowns with what is essential. Yeah. And, and if you think, okay, well, how far did that come to get to me? And did it come from a small business, medium-sized business? Did that, did the energy of the money of my exchange stay within the region to keep, you know, health in that, in that side of, um, of our community, or did it go and get exported back to some bigger multinational, uh, and you can start seeing these, you know, like a a Walmart or a big box store, right? It's like the, the classic examples, right? They come in give a discounted price, but they sort of systematically dry out the, the, the stability of, of these small towns because they take away the jobs and the, you know, the small medium sized businesses aren't, aren't able to, to survive. So it's, it's both got an economic dimension and a resource use, uh, dimension mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so that's that's another enormous topic. I mean, within the this first village that you're designing, have you explored what kinds of production is possible there? Are there certain types of businesses you're looking to include, or would make most sense in this bioregion that you're looking at?
0: So we we are, but we are not um, right now. It's it's more like guiding principles because it'll depend a lot on where we choose. We're looking at a couple different properties and we're still planning to assess a couple different regions. Uh-huh. And so the proximity to the existing businesses is gonna be a big factor in determining that. And basically we're, we're looking to, um, to get started with some strong anchor businesses um, that are committed to this trajectory and these values um, but they're not startups and we want, you know, we want a established team and balance sheet and, op, you know, operation yeah. uh, to stabilize. And then we actually plan to do collaborations with universities and make an, an accelerator uh, program where we have sort of an R&D for everything that the villages is, uh, is using from the technologies for water, energy, food and waste, as well as the the uh, sustainable building, uh, materials and architecture to be sort of like a lab for staying on the cutting edge. So everything that you see in the village is sort of the best of the 2021, 2025, uh, time period, but things are changing so fast that we'll, yeah. we'll want to keep a pulse, um, going forward. But, um, we do plan to have a mix of retail office and light industrial and the light industrial um, is, uh, you know, maybe that would include some furniture making some textile making Portugal has great, um, textile and shoes. And, um, those are wonderful opportunities for the reverse logistic programs. Um, so which is
1: I, like reclaiming materials. What is reverse? Yeah. Logistics?
0: Okay. Yeah. Rever- so it's, it's, um, bringing the materials back. Uh-huh. So if you, you know, you buy a, a pair of jeans or you buy a pair of shoes instead of throwing away, Uh, at the end of your use you get them back to the company or to a um a pickup partner that could Uh there could be a partner service that does that for several companies they bring it back and they have a localized uh refurbishment recycling upcycling center and so this gets this gets into the whole um cradle to cradle and design um philosophy so you You want to design for reuse which means mixing materials is um is always uh you want to we want to do less mixing of materials we want to make it easier to um separate and Uh reutilize, and and we need the facilities to do that but we need the economic incentives we need the market to do that as well right so finding um finding companies that want to commit to that in a meaningful way again knowing that you know we're not claiming we're going to have this 100% circular economy with all closed loops but we want to go you know we want to keep pushing the edge and that's that's the goal and so companies that are committed to to help getting there in addition to uh you know more future fit you know watching the way that the market's going um you know i think most companies now are you know in a similar way that we had this you know our we're we're still we're kind of at the the tail end of our first big technological, um, you know, digital revolution, and every company realized that to some degree they're a tech company. Um, in in terms of how they manage their cost structure and whether they use the technologies uh, available or not, will make them more or less competitive um, with their in their market. And now it seems, for the most part, most companies should be remote first, and then rethink their office space and so instead of how you know keeping a big um a big main headquarters maybe there's a flex space model where we have short term rentals and we have corporate retreats and we have you know a- an atmosphere that caters to co-working and remote work um not just for the residents that are living full time but for companies within an hour or 2 hours away or, or even even farther that want to come and And do their um their in-person components, say once a quarter or something like that. Uh Uh-huh. So we'll look um, we'll look at at that as well.
1: Awesome. Um, and maybe we have time to get a little more idea of one more, one more piece of this. You mentioned decentralized waste, water, energy, and food a couple of times. And I don't know if maybe one of those, I would imagine there's a lot to learn about any of those four. Can you tell us about decentralized waste or decentralized energy, what that might be looking like? Sure.
0: Yeah. I think I, I don't believe I mentioned another sort of a parent concept to that, that could help frame, frame those up. That is again, thinking about the, the degree of systemic change that we think we need and that it. You can look at it. So there's a there's a a, a framework or a common way to look at uh, technology companies, which is um, through a technology stack. And so you kind of have like your your different layers of types of of technology. And if you think about like a civilization, if you use that analogy. You think of like a civilization stack, and you think about okay, we've got our core utilities we've got our infrastructure we've got our buildings we've got our our food and our resources we've got our cultural activities we've got our education you know have all these different layers right and certain layers are more foundational and what a lot of the um, say lower hanging fruit sustainability initiatives um, get at are sort of more incremental change where we're at a time where we would argue we need we need a more disruptive change we need to go deeper into the stack and so that means looking into the foundation looking into the infrastructure and the core utilities waste energy food and water and when we say decentralized we're basically mean not on the main city grid so it's setting up rain capture through, um, through building our own lakes and our own water treatment uh, systems. Um, it's setting up uh, our own microgrid in an energy uh, context. It's investing in our own packaging standards and waste collection and composting uh, standards in the village. So we're, we're planning on providing composting as a service so that residents get used to taking their organic waste outside, but that the, the village association will pick it up. Anyone that wants to get more involved or have their own uh, small garden can manage it themselves. But even if you're just um, uh, if you don't want to get more involved, just like you separate your recycling, you'll separate your organic and you'll, you'll, you'll have that invitation to, to learn more about that system. Mm-hmm. And we'll integrate that into, into the, the regenerative farm on site.
1: Wow. The
0: farm, um, we, we want to, we're, we're targeting, uh, to provide food basket services. We'll have a local market there. We'll have a couple restaurants there and we'll provide, you know, our food and veg. Uh, but we're also open to other, uh, regional suppliers. And we want to also be a hub for other suppliers in the area that, you know, one of the biggest challenges for, uh, and this was was a previous business of mine, was working with, to strengthen the regional food supply with small and medium-sized businesses. And the biggest challenge that they face is sales channel and the, you know, the the ability to group ones together and have um, a point of sale that has a market already built in uh, is, is super helpful to to help stabilize those, those operations. So we, we, we are decentralized in our core, but we are reaching out and wanting to integrate with and collaborate with, um, other, um, businesses and organizations around us, we don't want to, it's not, the idea isn't to be a closed off, you know, some utopia that lives off in the distance it's to be a hub, and Uh to be a hub that's built on this new foundation, but that has many, um, many arms reaching out to to collaborate.
1: That sounds so smart, that to, to, like you said, starting at the bottom of the stack, or, you know, the foundations, but still being flexible to where this place probably, if necessary, could be fairly self sustaining, maybe with some adjustments, but that there's a foundation that makes that possible, but also fully in communication and networking and sharing of resources with other nearby places i'm i'm finding myself wondering as you talk about all of this i mean you mentioned waste right and so then having some experience with that on our little homestead thinking about what's the difference between a septic system or composting toilets or in most cities a sewer system and just down that one track of you know waste management plus composting, plus food waste, not just human waste. There's so much to learn and understand and that will probably be tweaked as things move along. And how are you learning about all these different things? Are you trying to learn about them all? Have you found experts in all these different subjects? I mean, at this point, we have people who've devoted their lives to regenerative agriculture or to energy and, and all of this. How are, are, is there lots and lots of networking and research?
0: yeah i mean all of the above and i'm trying to get myself to the way we talk about it and the team is we got to get to minimum olympic so i got to learn about all the core components to the level where i can have an informed uh discussion to find the right experts and help um you know evaluate what kind of direction we would go but not presuming to make any of those final decisions uh, on my own, mm-hmm. we're we're structuring we're structuring it basically like this recruitment to a design challenge. So we're we're laying out the scaffolding and the objectives. We're saying we think that this small town model with this new relationship and ratio to green space and and stewardship of the land um, is going to you know we can create a really attractive nested urbanism type environment that these you know this growing demographic is is interested in um what is what are the right you know do we want uh you know one single microgrid or do we want to cluster these right do we want a dedicated rooftop uh rain capture and solar or do we want to have more of a hub hub and spoke uh, kind of model right these are the the nuances uh that the experts will, will are, are guiding on and, and make the final decision on uh-huh. the I, just because you mentioned the compost toilets so dry toilets are huge uh that that was like a, a wonderful series of debates and conversations we had was, and, and i think where we're leaning we'll we'll see uh where we where we land but is to have the public toilets be dry toilets and to be on the luxury side of dry toilet and and that in the homes uh the ones that you can design on your own because we're going to have detached single family homes that you can um, select from, uh, pre-designs from our architects, or you can use our building code and build your own custom. And you can decide what kind of toilet you want. And there'll probably be a service to help manage it. If you choose a dry toilet, uh, and then in the, in the townhouses, so then we'll also have townhouses and we'll have apartments. We'll also have some apartment hotels that can be used for short and long-term rental. Um, we, we're still, I don't know if it is, uh, if it's, if, if the public is ready to receive an all dry toilet, <laughs> uh-huh. really. although it's a great water state, the water, the average water use is about 160 liters, um, per day in Lisbon and our experts with diverting and reusing gray water and, um, and treating the black water out, um, to, to localized, um, natural treatment, w- we're probably able to get that at least to 80 liters probably, mm-hmm. uh, and probably a little less. And if we did the dry toilets, we'd definitely go, go much less, but just yeah. with efficient fixtures, um, and, and more intelligent, um, systems in circulation inside, uh, the homes, uh, we can, we can do quite well.
1: Yeah. Wow. All right. So there's so many more questions I'm sure people have, there's more questions I have, and I know you guys still have lots more questions. So how can listeners keep up with what you're doing, learn more about the project and you know, when this village is is actually in construction, see what's going on.
0: Yeah. So we're we are still we're calling it semi-stealth. You know, we're we're not doing um much promotion. You can follow us on LinkedIn right now, it's the best place in Spire okay. Village. So I'll get the link for you. Um, but we are we are waiting until we have the sort of super credibility and clarity on our location and already the the confidence in in the permitting so this is our this is our big big hurdle our big first hurdle okay and we're you know we're designing this basically to be a, a poster child of the european green deal we've got biodiversity circular economy farm to fork we've got renewable energy you know we got all of the attributes that um that we already know are attractive but these things take time, these things are, are complex. And so we are we're not promoting much um, until uh, we get a few more of these things in order.
1: Okay, great. So we're getting a peek at the very get a preview. Beginning. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe I'll have you back on the podcast in the That'd future when there's <laughs> more to to um for everyone to get to see. But this is really exciting, and I hope that somebody, maybe many people listening are getting inspired like you said, you know, other cities can be inspired by this and other designs. So.
0: Yeah, maybe if you'll let me give one last um little point here. Yeah. That um coming back to those three stories and where we are in the world and how to approach the great turning. I really f- fully believe in the need of a diverse portfolio of strategies. And so I find myself personally committed and optimistic, you know pretty obsessed with the one we're approaching. but I would be you know um, equally as uncomfortable or disappointed if everybody uh, was doing this just yeah. as if everybody was thinking about um, you know the space race that would not be a sufficient portfolio. Yeah. so I think that you know the all the different sizes of projects, the different you know interventions that help move us in this direction are super important. And when we zoom out i think that's what we want to be looking at is how is our portfolio strategies um, looking in as it's as it's kind of you know like waves crashing into this these these degrading norms and and starting to you know pave the way for the this this transformation uh so yeah i think that's um that's at least been really helpful for me so i wanted to share that that portfolio you. perspective yeah.
1: Yes, I totally agree. I mean, that's, that's how I'm looking at it too, is it's so encouraging really to look around and see how people are drawn to different facets of this. Cause it's all so necessary. Every contribution on the, you know, whether it's very much about how humans are relating to other humans, which we need a lot of healing and <laughs> restoration and repair around, or How we're relating to our food, like we need people on every part of this and the whole the whole diverse portfolio. So yes, yes, and yes, absolutely. I have one last question for you. If you if something comes to mind, which is if people listening are feeling inspired, is there one thing you could suggest to them that they might do or that they might look into after they finish listening to our conversation?
0: I would say close your eyes and do whatever practice you have to memorize that sense of inspiration and try to call upon it as frequently as possible and listen to your intuition or follow the path that you're already on and, and go where you're passionate and there's change and there's, there's, there's a need for people to hold space everywhere. And there's a need for all sorts of different transformation. Uh, so you know, there's um, there are many doors opening, and you know you just gotta, I think, find the ones that that feel right to go into and and stay with that um, stay with that feeling.
1: Here, here, beautifully said, let's all let's all anchor in this feeling of inspiration and go forth in whatever way feels right to each of us. Thank you so much for this conversation, Jay. You said so many exciting and intriguing and important things. And I'm I can't wait to watch this unfold.
0: Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you for everything you're doing.
1: Thank you so much for listening. I would truly love to hear what you think about this and also what you feel drawn to explore if you're feeling a sense of inspiration. Even if it's not there all the time, what inspires you when you're feeling it? There's nothing too big or too small. It would be a lot of fun to hear from you. Come leave a comment on turningseason.com slash episode two. Help me get some conversation going there. And I'll be back again with our next episode on the full moon. Until then, thank you again for listening and for all the ways you play your part in The Great Turning.